0: If you've got a Bible, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Go ahead and turn there. If not, you can follow on the screen as we read together. As we begin this morning, taking a look at the first of these seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and considering what Jesus has to say to our church. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, John writes the words of Jesus, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand Now, I'm, I'm, for those of you who don't know, I'm a closet country music fan. Um, I don't, don't talk about it very often, uh, but if you go on a fishing trip with me, you'll discover that. Um, and in 2017, Chris Stapleton, a country music recording artist, released an album called From a Room. And one of the tracks on that album was a, 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 a song titled Either Way. And it tells a story of a marriage, of a marriage in which the passion has waned, the love has diminished, and there's seemingly no hope any longer for that husband and that wife. I want you to hear the words of that song as he sings them. He says, we pass in the hall on our way to separate rooms. The only time we ever talk is when the monthly bills are due. We go to work, we go to church, we fake the perfect life. I'm past the point he says of caring about the relationship and all my tears are cried. And then in the second verse he says it's been so long since I've felt anything inside these walls. You can't hate and you can't hurt when you don't feel at all. I used to cry and stay up nights and wonder what went wrong and it's been hard but hearts can only do that for so long. And then the the, the chorus he says we can just go on like this say the word and we'll call it quits. Baby, you can go or you can stay, but I won't love you either way. Church, one of the most painful things you can ever hear in your life are these words, I don't love you anymore. Some of us have felt the sting of that in breakups, in dating relationships before in our past. And some of us have felt the crushing weight of those words whenever they come out the mouth of a spouse. It's incredibly destructive and damaging. However, what we often don't realize is those words, they've been building for a long time, right? They don't come out of nowhere. They've been building and building and building oftentimes for years, and many times the evidence of them was there long before those words were ever spoken. When a spouse quits believing the best about the other, that the other is against them instead of for them, and they become enemies instead of allies in the context of a relationship. That's evidence This is the track that they're heading down. Whenever they stop communicating with each other about their hopes and their dreams, about their joys and their disappointments, what happens is the emotional intimacy in the relationship begins to wither and the physical intimacy begins to dry up as well. And they're left in a lifeless and loveless relationship. Their concerns turn inward on themselves and they become only concerned about whether or not their needs are being met rather than outwardly facing their spouse and saying, how can I love, serve, and honor them? Right? This, and this, this state, the this status, this position doesn't appear overnight, but over time. Over time. And oftentimes it appears so slowly we don't even recognize that it's taking place. Right, it just slowly creeps in. Because no one just wakes up in the morning, one morning, when their alarm goes off and slams the snooze button, right, for the fourth time, if you're like me. Right, hit the snooze button over and over again. And finally, whenever you wake up, you roll over and you look at your spouse in the bed and you look in their eyes and you say, we're through. It doesn't just happen in the instant of a moment. It's been building for years before those words are ever spoken. And listen, there was a ticking time bomb waiting to explode underneath. And while everyone on the outside looking in is like, shocked and surprised you're like I can't believe it's them right I never would have thought it would have been them right their Facebook profiles and posts they look so happy together all the time and everything that they're doing and their relationship has been slowly withering and decaying for years and those on the inside looking out they're often not shocked or surprised they may be saddened but they've seen it building for years and listen church This is true not only in horizontal relationships between husbands and wives, but it is also true in the vertical relationship that every Christian and every church shares with our heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus. It happens there as well. And this is exactly the crossroads that the church at Ephesus finds herself at as the Apostle John is writing to her the words of Jesus. See, Ephesus has many things that they could be commended for, but there was one thing that needed to be corrected for. Is the fact that they had settled into a lifeless and loveless relationship with their Lord. That's where they found themselves in this loveless relationship with Jesus. And before we get into that correction here in the text this morning, what I want to do is I want to set up the things they were commended for because I want you to see how shocking these words of Jesus are to the church at Ephesus because they had so much externally on the outside going for them, but it was devoid of life because it was devoid of love. Listen to what the the Apostle John says, what what Jesus has to say to this church at Ephesus that he commends them for. Three things. First of all, he commends them for their doctrinal precision. Precision. Their doctrinal precision, Jesus says, way to go. That's a good thing, church, to be doctrinally precise. Listen, Ephesus, little, little info about Ephesus. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the ancient world. It came in behind Rome, behind Alexandria, and behind Antioch. And at the time, it had a population close to the size of Garland, Texas. About 250,000 people lived in Ephesus at this time. Ephesus was one of the reasons it was large and prosperous was because it was uh, uh, the, the convergent point of three major trade routes, one that stretched north up into Europe, one that stretched east over into Asia, and one that stretched south down into the Middle East and Africa. And so you had all kinds of commerce and business coming into the city of Ephesus from all points on the globe. But not only did people come to Ephesus to do business, but they also exchanged beliefs in the city of Ephesus, as you had different worldviews coming from different parts of the world, and the way they saw life, the way they understood God, the way they understood themselves. And so you had this mixture of all kinds of worldviews forming there in Ephesus. You had folks coming from the east, from the north, from the south, and even because Ephesus was a harbor city, a port city, you had folks coming on, on ships from the Mediterranean, from the west, And coming into the city, exchanging all kinds of ideas about God. And as a result, Ephesus became a pluralistic hub of major and minor world religions. He had all kinds of temples that dotted the city to all kinds of gods and goddesses. And the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor, was incredibly strong and pervasive there as well. And in Acts chapter 20, when the apostle Paul is leaving the city of Ephesus... As he sails to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit revealed to him, you're going to Jerusalem and you're going to die there. And Paul's like, sign me up. All right, so he's going to Jerusalem. He gathers the Ephesian elders, says, I'm never going to see you again. And here's what you need to guard yourself against. Whenever I leave, you're going to have men who come in from outside and men who rise up from the inside who are going to begin to twist and distort the truth, and they're going to lead many astray as their disciples. And he says, be on guard against false teachers. And the church at Ephesus was... Look at what Jesus says to them in verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus says, You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Jesus says, In a city that had so many circulating ideas about who God was and about how to interact with Him, how to worship Him, that the Ephesian church had not abandoned their doctrinal precision. They continued to hold to the teachings of the Old Testament and the witness of the Apostles. Right? They didn't adopt a buffet belief system. Right? You know what that is? You go to Luby's, you pick up a tray, and you kind of walk down. Right? I don't know if you go to Luby's, but maybe any other buffet. right? You walk down, and you say, I want a little bit of this, and 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 you put it on your plate, and you go sit down, and you make a meal for yourself out of all the courses and available options. Right? And there are there are churches and individual Christians who do that, right? They say, I want a little bit of this from this worldview, a little bit of this from this worldview, a little bit of this from this worldview, and a little bit of this from this worldview. I'm going to make my own, right, specialized personalized worldview, I'm my own religion, right? I'll take Christianity and I'll synchronize it with all these other world religions, right? So I'll take a little bit from Buddhism, a little bit from Confucianism, a little bit from maybe Islam, a little bit from Judaism, a little bit from uh, New Age philosophy. I'll take all these little pieces and I'll merge them all together. And yet the church at Ephesus did not adopt that practice. They continued to confront false teachers and they continued to identify them as such. And Jesus says, way to go. It's a good thing to be doctrinally precise. Second, Jesus commends them for their moral practices. Look, Heraclitus was one of the Ephesian philosophers in the ancient world. He was known as the weeping philosopher. And the reason he cried all the time is not because he was always cutting up onions, because he went around the city and he saw all kinds of just weird and whacked out stuff going on. Listen, he is quoted as saying this, He said that the citizens of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned and that the reason he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. He lamented over the immorality that he saw in the city. Right, because you got all these worldviews coming together and people picking and choosing from different ones to create their own. And some of them were, 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 were in, in these temples where you went to worship the gods. They had like temple prostitutes and you would pay the prostitute and you would engage in all kinds of perverse activities with the prostitute there at the temple. And he said the city was rampant and rife with all kinds of immorality. And yet Jesus says to them in verse 6, he says, this you have, this is going for you, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about who these people were. They show up again in a couple of weeks in another letter to another church. But what we do know about them is this, is that they were a a way of relating to God that embraced idolatry and immorality. And Jesus says, you despise what they're doing as I despise what they're doing. Because as people have adopted all kinds of weird and whacked out beliefs, it's led to all kinds of weird and whacked out practices in their lives, right? Because false teaching always coincides with foolish living. And so these practices have begun to emerge, and yet the Ephesian church had continued to walk in holiness. They continued to walk in obedience. They continued to observe the commands of God. And God says, that's a good thing. He commends them for that. But third, Jesus commends them for their faithful perseverance as well. In verse 3, Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Listen, in a city with so much opposition to Christianity and to the church, from the Jews, from the the emperors, from all kinds of people, from all kinds of places opposing them and persecuting them, they have continued to gladly bear reproach for the name of Jesus. Even as their leaders are exiled onto small islands in the Aegean Sea. Even as their friends are arrested and tortured for their faith, even as their family members face death on account of their loyalty to Jesus, they continue to gladly bear reproach for his name. And Jesus says, that's a good thing. Faithful perseverance, moral practice, and doctrinal precision are all good things. Listen, any denomination and any mission agency and any church planting organization would say, We want churches like that. We want churches and missionaries that are doctrinally precise. We want them where there is holiness of lifestyle, where there is a moral practice that is above reproach. And we want them to be able to endure faithfully hardship and opposition and persecution and affliction. We want those kinds of churches. We want those kinds of missionaries. And yet, Jesus says, I have something against you. In all, all of those things that he celebrates that are good things, he says, this is what I have against you. That despite your doctrinal precision, and despite your moral practice, and despite your faithful perseverance, you have lost your relational passion. You've lost passion. And you're living in this loveless relationship with God, in verse 4, listen to what Jesus has to say, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, there are scholars who debate whether or not this is love for God or love for people, but I want you to know something, that you can't separate those two. Jesus says in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12 in the great commandment that the degree to which you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength will be the degree to which you can move toward your neighbor and love them without using them. The degree to which God satisfies all your desires, your hopes, your dreams, and ambitions that you find fulfillment in Him will be the degree to which you're able to love well those who are around you. So I don't think we can pull these two things apart because they go together. They're joined at the hip. And yet Jesus says, This is what you have against you. You've lost this passion, you've lost love for God, you've lost love for people. Uh, despite your precision, despite your perseverance, despite your practices, there is no passion at the heart of the church. And so we might be saying, well, why is this such a big deal? Right? Why make such a fuss about this? And here's why. Because Jesus in his own words, this is what he says. Huh? He says, there is no light without love. Church, there is no light without love precision practice and perseverance without passion is dark and is cold and it results in the loss of witness and potentially eventually even in the loss of existence as a church where there is no passion for God where there is no love for people you lose witness and eventually existence Jesus says in verse 5 if things don't change church this is what he says I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent Unless there's a change, unless there's a reignition of a kindling of love for God, unless there's a reignition of a kindling of love for people, that you're not just trying to win arguments, but you're trying to win people. You're not fighting false teaching out of a love for God and love for others, but just out of a love for being right. Unless there's a love for God and a love for people at the center of the church, he says, I will come and remove your lampstand because there is no light without love. Does that sound kind of harsh to you? At first blush, it sounds kind of harsh to me, right? That Jesus would really come and amputate a church's witness, even though they were precise in their doctrine, and persevered in opposition, and, and they had faithful moral practices and walking in holiness and obedience. It sounds kind of harsh, but if it sounds kind of harsh to you like it did to me, I want you to consider something. Is that Jesus, what he desires, he desires to have more than a formal legal relationship with you. More than a formal legal relationship with me and more than a formal and legal relationship with this church. Right, over and over again in the Bible, the imagery that's used to describe the relationship between God and his people is that of a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom. You see it in places like Isaiah 54. You see it in Jer- the book of Jeremiah. You see it in the book of Ezekiel. You see it in the book of Hosea. You see it here in Revelation, in the, Revelation 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see it all across the pages of the Bible that God desires to have an intimate, affectionate relationship with His people. That He's given Himself to us for that, not just so that we can check off all of our doctrinal boxes, and not just so that we can live lives of holiness, and not just so that we can faithfully endure hop- opposition and hardship, but that there might be a love and passion for God. That we, as His bride, might love Him as our groom. That's what He desires that's what he desires let me ask you this question church for those of you who are married and those of you who aspire to marry one day right if you're single in the room if you're married or aspire to marriage and you're looking for examples of what marriage should look like are you looking for a marriage in which a husband and wife are only legally bound to each other by a certificate they keep on file in a filing cabinet in their study is that what you're looking for as an example in your marriage That's usually not what most people are looking for. When they say, "I want somebody to," I want an example to follow. I want some 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 shoes to walk in. You're not looking for a husband and wife who are merely legally bound to each other, but you're looking for ones who are lovingly bound to each other, one where there's still passion one where there's still affection, one where there's still love, one where there's still service, one where they're still moving towards each other, they're still communicating, there's still intimacy at an emotional level, there's still intimacy at a physical level, they still celebrate one another, they're still allies and on each other's team. That's what you're looking for in the context of a marriage that you want to aspire to. Right, that's what you're looking for. You're not just looking for legal binding. You're not looking for a cold, dead, dead marriage to model yours after. You're not going, that's what marriage is, right? They have a marriage license. They pay their bills, right? They have a roof over their head. They take a vacation annually. They celebrate the perfunctory cultural holidays with gifts, like the one coming up here in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Hallmark, right? They celebrate those things with some gifts that they exchange, Right? Their kids go to school. The state of Texas isn't showing up on their door right? saying, where are your kids? You haven't filed paperwork. You're not homeschooling them. You're not in private school. You're not in public school. Right? Your kids are going to school. The kids are getting an education. Most mornings they make it out of the house with their teeth brushed and their hair combed all right? and dressed appropriately. Right? Is that, is that what you're looking for in, to model a marriage after? Or are you looking for one that has passion, affection, and love at the heart of that home? Jesus says, that's the kind of image that I want to project to the world. Because if all you have with me is a formal, legal relationship that does not set on display to the world the kind of lover I am, who's able to satisfy his bride. And that sounds like really questionable language to some of you, but that's the language of the Bible. The, the kind of husband I am and the tenderness that I have doesn't show that to the world. Doesn't show to the world the kind of service I provided for you in the way that I've laid my life down for you if you just have a cold, dead, legal, formal relationship with me. That's why this matters so much because without love, there is no light. Because you're not shining forth to the world the beauty, the glory, the majesty and mystery of Jesus. In your life or in the life of this church, it's not happening. Two quotes hit me this week as I read them one by by, by a man named John Stott, who's since gone to be with the Lord, but he wrote these words in a little book on these first three chapters of Revelation, speaking of the church. He says, Only when it's the church's love burns can its light shine. Many churches today have ceased truly to exist. Their buildings may remain intact, Their ministers minister, their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed. The church is plunged into darkness. No glimmer of light radiates from it. It has not light because it has no love. And James Boyce, who's traveled extensively to all kinds of stripes and shades of evangelical churches across America... He said this he says an actual interest in God is hard to find despite vigilant activity in many churches while there is a great interest in proper organizational methods ministry techniques and the kind of music that is performed and how it's performed he says God has become weightless for the masses of today's alleged believers we don't feel the weight of God on our lives any longer We don't feel the weight of his holiness. We don't feel the weight of his joy. We don't feel the weight of his love. We don't feel the weight of his character and nature, of his acts. He quotes a man by the name of David Wells as well, Boyce does, and he says, God rests on us so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. It's like a fly landing on your hair. that sometimes you don't, you don't even feel it. You don't even sense it. You don't even taste it. How do you know, church, if you've crossed that line? How do you know if you've moved into this loveless relationship with your Lord? I'm gonna run down several several benchmarks this one. I'm not gonna... Uh, Unpack each one of them so you can jot them down, go back and listen to the podcast, whatever you want to do to process these. But I'm going to just run through them quickly because we got more to get to. Because Jesus is so compassionate, he gives a solution to this problem too. But how do you know if this is where you are? First, if you use truth as a sword rather than a scalpel, you've crossed that line. You know what I mean by that? You use a sword and a scalpel in very different ways with people. Right? A scalpel is intended to heal. A sore is intended to hurt. Do you bludgeon people with truth or do you bless them with it? In addition, if you use doctrine to feel intellectually superior to others, you might have precise doctrine, but you use it to feel intellectually superior to others and feel like the smartest person in the room, then you've crossed that line and entered into this loveless relationship with your Lord. If your life of holiness is wielded in such a way as to make yourself feel morally superior to others and make them feel morally inferior to you, and there is no humility, there's no winsomeness about your life, there's no attractiveness about your life, even to those whose wheels are completely off, right and they're in all kinds of perverted and foolish behavior if there's no winsomeness about you no attractiveness about you but you just use your moral practices to feel superior to others and make them feel inferior to you you've crossed that line in addition if you patiently endure right faithful perseverance if you patiently endure to prove every one a to every person around you to the watching world, to your parents, to your teachers and coaches from high school, to your ex, to prove to everyone how strong you are. Not how strong God is and how strong he can be in their life. You've crossed a line. If your theology and your doctrinal precision makes you feel big and makes God feel small to you, that you've got him kind of confined into the, all these parameters and, 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 and categories, you've crossed a line. There's no mystery to God any longer in your life. Listen, if your prayers are just statements of truth, just propositions about who God is, but there's no tributes to God, praise to God, affections to God, adoration of God in your prayers, you've probably crossed a line. You're just kind of repeating a bunch of propositions and statements of truth about God. But there's no love driving you to your knees when you pray. If your theology, listen, keeps you from doxology, you know what doxology is? It's a hymn of praise to God. It's worship, right? If you go, I don't need to engage in worship, right? I don't need to sing, I don't need to lift my voice, I don't need to raise my hands, I don't need to surrender my life, I don't need to express any kind of emotion or passion to God, because I've got God figured out. If my theology keeps me from doxology, then you've crossed a line. Because theology was never intended to keep you from it, but to feel it. That when you gather in a room on on, on Sunday morning with other believers who are admonishing one another with hymns and songs and spiritual songs that you would be with your heart engaged not just kind of slowly numbing out these words that are on a screen behind me. but your heart would be engaged. It would be passion and love. Because knowledge of God was always intended to inflame the heart with love for God. And listen, love for God was always intended to drive you back to understanding more of who this God is that you claim to love. See, these are supposed to be two rails that our lives run on, right? And Because whenever you, whenever you just get imbalanced and you run on one of those rails of either knowledge or love, but not both, you're running on the rail of just love for God. I love Jesus, right? I've got affections for him. I've got passions for him. I'm a very highly emotion, emotive person, right? I love to get excited. But that's the only rail you're running on. Just all this emotion, you get really confused really quick. Because you can stir up a lot of emotion with some really creepy, crawly things that live under rocks. On the other hand, if all you've got is knowledge of God and no affections for Him, right, you become very calloused. And there's no warmth. There's no tenderness. There's no gentleness. Because knowledge of God was always intended to fuel love for God and love for God was always intended to drive you back to an understanding of who this God is that you say that you love. So that you can ensure what you're saying about him is honoring to him and not dishonoring to him. So chew on that. You know Jesus. Jesus is, I said before, so tender and so compassionate because He doesn't just leave us here in this short-circuited state of affairs. He actually provides a solution. I want to give it to you as we close this morning. He tells us three things. He says, how is it, church, that you come back to this place of not abandoning the love and affection that you f- formerly had, but living in it? And he says three things. First of all, he says, remember. He says, remember. In verse 5, Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Listen, church, the, the call to remember is not merely a call to remember information about God. But it's a call also to remember intimacy that you once enjoyed with God. Intimacy that we once had with God. Rem- and this, listen, this word remember, it's a type of verb. An action word that describes an action, something that we must do presently, continually, persistently, and daily. In other words, he says, do it constantly because you never want to forget what it was like at first. You never want to abandon the memories of the intimacy that you once enjoyed with God. And let me ask you a question, church. Is that missing from your life right now? Is that passion for God missing? Is the love for God missing? Is an intimacy with God void and absent in your life right now? If so, Jesus says, you're in a dangerous place. See, listen, hear me out. It is possible, without remembering, it is possible to have a prestigious past and a perilous present. To have a prestigious past and all kinds of skins on the wall, right? But a perilous present. I talk to people sometimes. And whenever I, whenever I get in conversations with people as a pastor, I talk to them about their faith and about their engagement in church and about how they've been serving the Lord and all those kinds of things. And listen, Some of the, one of the consistent patterns that rises oftentimes in people's lives is this. is that They begin to say things like this. I, I used to. I, 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 I used to read the Bible, I used to spend time in prayer, I used to serve, I used to give, I used to be involved in ministry, I used to take mission trips, right? I used to do all these things, right? But it's like they've reached a point in their life where they've said, it's, it's time to hang up the boots, right? And they're not 93 in a nursing home on a ventilator about to draw their last breath. They're like 35 or 40 with a few kids who are young and they're like, look, I'm just hanging the boots up, man. I used to do all these things, but I don't do them anymore. They have a prestigious past, but they find themselves in a position in the present that is incredibly perilous because they feel like they've retired from Christianity. They are just kind of hung it up. But I'm not going to dig deeply into a church. I'm not going to commit anywhere. I'm just going to kind of float through. I'm just going to kind of be comfortable. I'm not going to be accountable to anyone. I'm not going to be engaged in serving anywhere. I'm just going to kind of float and Jesus says that's a perilous place to be. See, it's possible to have a, ch- and it's possible at times, church, listen, to have a church filled with people like that. Who have all kinds of a pre- prestigious past, but a very perilous present, and that puts the church in a perilous place as well. All right? You go to life groups and you sit around and you listen to conversations as they take place and it's all about, right, you feel like Bruce Springsteen's playing on the little Bluetooth speaker over in the corner and just singing Glory Days, Right? Everybody's reminiscing about the glory days that they once enjoyed. I used to, I used to, I used to. Jesus says, remember what it was like at first because what I want with you is an ongoing honeymoon. Listen, if you go to marriage counseling, one of the things that marriage counselor will often ask you to do is look at your spouse and say, answer this question, what was it about your spouse that attracted you to them in the first place? And they're going to ask you to think through the character qualities, the things that you enjoyed together, the things that you did together, the conversations that you had. What is it that wooed you about them, that drew you in to such a deep connection that would make you want to say, I publicly, I want to covenant with this person for the rest of my life. What was it about you that captivated you and attracted you to begin with? The simple and creative dates that you went on. The hopes and dreams that you shared. What was it that drew you in? And they're going to say, remember those things. When you begin to question your love for your spouse. And listen church, I want to encourage you to do the same thing this morning in your relationship with God. Recall what it was like at first. When you first came to faith in Christ. Whether you were six years old and were in a family of pastors and deacons. Or whether you were in your 20s and had wrecked your life on the rocks of, kind of all kinds of bad choices. Remember what it was like at first, when you first began to to feel a spark of love for God in your heart, when the Holy Spirit first opened your eyes to see your sin and your need for a Savior. Remember, recall those things. Recall what it was like the first time you heard that the God who made everything, including you, had a heart that burned with love for everything that He's created, including you recall what it was like when you were first told about the love of the Father and the sending of His Son to live and die in your place, shed His blood for your sin, rise from the grave to victory and send the Holy Spirit to impregnate your heart with a love for God as an adopted son or daughter. That you were no longer estranged from your Maker, but you have been reconciled now as a child. Recall what that was like when that truth first settled on your heart. When the words of Frederick Lehman in the, in the, in the hymn that he wrote entitled the Love of God began to flash across the pages of your life when he said the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win, his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then he says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? With every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh love of God how rich and pure how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels song." that the saints and angels will forever be singing about this measureless, matchless, incomparable love of God. And recall the first time that settled on your heart and the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see. Remember, church, remember that you were loved and the intimacy that you once enjoyed with him and the height from which you have fallen if you do not find yourself there now. The second thing that Jesus says, is this, not only remember, but repent. You know, you've probably heard the word before, probably heard the word repentance before, that it means to turn, to do an about face, a 180, to change your mind in the way that you think. To change what you believe about something. How you see things, right? And listen, I want you to know something this morning, that repentance is not merely a change in actions. Okay? It's not merely saying, I'm gonna adjust my lifestyle. But repentance at its fundamental core as well as a change in affections. It's a change not only in lifestyle but in loves. What you're loving, what you're giving your attention to, what you're giving your affections to. You see, in marriages, oftentimes the reason that passion wanes and that love fades, oftentimes so often, is not necessarily because of a big, massive, gross sin that gets committed, but because of seasonal neglect in which our eyes get turned to oftentimes even good things that take priority over that relationship. And the same thing is true in your relationship with God. Is there are things that rise to levels of priority in your life that you give your attention to. And that as a result, because your eyes are fixed on them, your heart is overflowing with love for them. And you continue to fill your eyes with them and they, your eyes are not necessarily the windows to the soul, right? They don't, you don't look into the, somebody's soul through your eyes, but the eyes are the lenses, right? They're, a, they're an active, right? They're like the telescope of the soul. Whatever I fix, the binoculars of the soul, whatever I fix my eyes on, whatever I fix my attention on, my heart slowly begins to fill with affection for them. And there's and 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 a part of this repentance, church, is this: is it to turn and change what you're loving? It means a change in what you're fixing your eyes on, what you're filling your heart with, what you're giving your attention to. Right? Remember what it was like in those first days when your attention just naturally flew to Jesus. Right? And you were you're walking through a. Through Target or through Walmart, and all of a sudden these thoughts of Jesus emerge in your mind, and this love for Jesus erupted in your heart. It wasn't something you had to muster or conjure up. It was just there. And remember, fix your eyes there. Remember, repent, turn from all these other competing loves. And for some of us what that means is this is that we've got to come to a place where we say to ourselves and we say to all these other competing affections to say this you will not love me the way Jesus does. You will not satisfy me the way Jesus does. You will not fulfill me the way Jesus does. You look at your career and say to your career you will not be the lover that Jesus is to me. You look at your spouse And say, you will not be the lover that Jesus is to me. You look at your kids. Some of you have so much of your identity and attention. And listen, you can't neglect them, right? Because they'll just be in the street playing and get run over by a car or down a storm drain somewhere. And you'll you'll be washed off, right? You can't, you got to keep your eyes on them. Like the eyes of your, some of our hearts are so fixed on our kids. They'll be in somebody else's house eating cookies through their garage door. All right, that's the true story, okay? And so you gotta keep, but, but the eyes of your heart are so fixed on your kids saying, love me, love me, validate me. And so you gotta learn to look at your kids and say, you will never love me like Jesus loves me. No matter how good of a mom I am, no matter how good of a dad I am, you will never love me like Jesus loves me. See, so I learned to look at these competing lovers of all of your accomplishments and awards, and say, you will never love me like Jesus loves me. All of your possessions, you will never love me like Jesus loves me. You need to preach that to yourself day after day after day as you turn from all these other competing affections to foster affection and love for God in your life. So remember and repent. And then third, Jesus says this. He says, "Return." Return. And he says it in that same context when he says, remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Return to those things that you did early on. Right? You go to marriage, any marriage counselor and you know what they're going to tell you? Start dating your spouse again. When was the last time that you gave them the kind of attention that you used to give them Right? Now you've got all these things, else, other things going on. You've got careers, you've got mortgages to pay, you've got bills to pay, you've got kids to, to feed and clothe and comb their hair and get them out the door to school. All these things, you've got all these things vying for your attention. When was the last time you dated your spouse? When was the last time you did those things that you did at first? And they would say, return to those things. Return to those things. And Jesus says the same thing to us. Return to those things. And listen, notice Jesus does not say you need to conjure up a bunch of emotion before you act. It's not what he says. He says, first return to those acts of obedience. See, one commentator said, he he pointed out that Christ's command is not feel thy feelings first, but do the works first. Do the first works it makes the point that to regain the warmth of this affection is neither by working up some spasmodic emotion or by theorizing about it, but by doing its duties. What did you used to do at first? I remember when I first came to faith in Jesus as a 15-year-old, poor and infatuated kid who had a broken relationship with his family. I remember when I first came to Jesus, like I couldn't get enough of the Bible. Just reading God's Word in my broom at night before I went to school in the morning. I would bring it with me to school and I'd read it in breaks from class periods. I couldn't get enough of consuming the Word of God. When I first came to Jesus, I I would offer up these heartfelt, sincere prayers. I didn't know the theological terminology to pray with. I just prayed what was on my heart and I began to see God answering these simple, heartfelt prayers in my life. And when I first came to Jesus, I can remember the works that just kind of naturally flowed out of that. I wanted to tell other people about him. I shared the good news of the gospel with my family, with friends at school. I remember engaging in dialogue and conversation, not knowing the answers, going back to my youth pastor and saying, I have no idea what to say to this. He was like, Here, say this. And I went back and said, Said that? All right. Right? You engage in those kinds of conversations. Be a part of the mission that Jesus has for us as a church of making disciples and sharing the gospel. Seeing people converted to faith in Christ and shaped and sent out as missionaries. He says, do the things you did at first. At first we were consistently aware of his presence and watched him answer these prayers in our lives. We wanted to be with other Christians in worship, united with them. I can remember when I first came to faith in Jesus. Right? I was at youth group every Wednesday and church every Sunday. I walked down the street to the church which was block and a half from my house. I just wanted to be there. As we sang, to be there as the scriptures were open. I wanted to be there as we took the Lord's table. I wanted to be there in fellowship with other believers. As quirky as they were and as quirky as I was. I just wanted to be around them. Because the center of their life was the center now of my life. Right? Remember, he says, return to those things that you once did. says remember where you've come from the intimacy that you once enjoyed repent and exchange all these competing affections for affections in Christ fix your eyes on him by saying to all the other lovers in your life that they will never love you the way that Jesus loves you and then come back to these first works and see if God doesn't begin to reignite the spark of affection in your life for him So that regardless of how precise you are on your doctrine and regardless of how holy you attempt to be in your walking and living of life in your moral practices and no matter how much endurance you show and persevere patiently, that at the center of all of that would not be duty, but it would be delight. It would be passion. It would be love. So like John says in the stunning promise that Jesus gives at the end, he says, for those who conquer, they will get to enjoy the tree of life and the paradise of God. In other words, the love that you have, with, that you share and feel for Him now, in part, as you continue to fan that into flame and do the works that you did at first and remember and re- repent, that one day what you feel in part will be completed and you're not going to be able contain it in eternity. something I look forward to in the church. I want to pray for us this morning as we close that God would help us to remember to return and to repent. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room that we would be once again captivated by your love for us. That we would not settle into complacency because we have an orthodox doctrinal confession. That we would not settle into complacency because we're aiming to bend all of our life into accordance with the teachings of Scripture and, and walk in holiness. That we would not settle into complacency because we are bearing up under opposition in a, a newfound cultural hostility in which uh, we are, our, our worldview, our understanding of life, our understanding of you, At many junctures and turns, is under attack. That we wouldn't just say we endure, we persevere, we're precise, and we practice the commands of Scripture. But God, that at the center of all of that, that we'd be burning with passion for you, we'd be burning with love for you. And God, for those of us in this room whose hearts have waned in affections, they've waned in passion. God, may you restore that as we remember the height from which we have fallen, the intimacy that we once enjoyed. May you restore that as we turn from all the other lover gods in our lives to fix our attention on you so that our hearts will be filled with affection for you and we could say to all the other lovers in our lives that they will never satisfy like you do. And that we might return to those first works. We might put our face in the scriptures. We might engage with other believers. We might be on our knees pouring our heart out before you. Not just stacking up propositions of truth in prayer. But pouring our hearts out before you. And that God as we stack the kindling. Would your spirit light the flame. And may we burn. May we burn with love so that this church and our lives might shine forth light. We pray it in Jesus' name.